The first reading this morning is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Well, good morning, you brood of vipers. Welcome to church this morning. I hope you are enjoying this uh, rain that the Lord has provided for us. Um, I also wanted to welcome those that are joining us online this morning. My name is uh, Tim. I'm one of the interns here at WDBC. If you haven't met me already, hi. Um, our message this morning, as we've just seen, is through uh, Luke chapter 3. And the title of the message this morning is The Way is Prepared. John's message prepares the people for the coming of salvation with a call to repentance. If you haven't noticed already, our text this morning appears quite interesting for us as 
John calls those coming out to be baptized a brood of vipers. And I don't know about you, you, but I don't really call people vipers when I'm sharing the gospel, unless probably now. But what seems strange to us um, wasn't strange in those times. And what John says and what he uses as a tactic is quite important for us today. And as we go through this message, I want, you pay, I want you to be paying close attention to John's words and God's message. Because it tells us of the antidote that's going to restore us from this deadly poison known as sin. But before we hear of this antidote, I think we should bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we just um, come before you this morning and ask for uh, your grace and your mercy. Lord, prepare our hearts to listen to what John has to say. And Lord, would we be paying close attention to uh, God's message. Lord, help us to, to find you. Lord, would we rest in your grace and mercy. Lord, we just thank you for your son. And Lord, help us to treasure the good news, the way of salvation. In your name I pray. Amen. So over the last couple of weeks, we've heard from Stephen and Jonathan the accounts of John the Baptist and Jesus in their infancy. And today, our story picks up 30 years later, and these once infants are now fully grown adults. And Luke, be, uh, Luke begins the story, being the good historian that he is, by tying together for us some of world's history with salvation history. He does this so that Theophilus, the man that Luke is writing to, and you and I may know for certain the things that are happening. That these accounts from Jesus are not a myth, but are grounded in actual historical fact. And Luke takes his job seriously. If men and women are to know the truth, to know that these things about Jesus that are about to unfold are true, we need to actually know that Jesus and John were real people in a real time and in real history. So that what Luke does is he grounds these, uh, these two figures, John and Jesus, in history by listing for us some of these influential leaders of the time. And he lists them from uh, most important to least important. And we're going to have a look at that at, uh, in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, oh, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, oh, sorry, just pause it right there. A Tetrarch, if you didn't know, is like a petty prince or a subordinate prince. Let's keep reading. His brother Philip, Tetrarch of Etria and Trachonitis, Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of, of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The point here that Luke's trying to make is the gospel is breaking in. It's breaking into history. From the important rulers like Caesar's to the governors of Judea 
There is one man by whom social standards is the least important here in the whole story. That's John the Baptist. But this one man, John, God has chosen to be a prophet for him and to share the good news of salvation. He chooses this man not living in a palace, but in the wilderness. Now the wilderness played an important role uh, in shaping Israel's history, most notably uh, when Israel got led out of the Exodus. But the wilderness was also a place that, uh, that was for testing, repentance, and really, uh, reliance on God's grace. It was a place of prophetic hope. And John being in the wilderness is given by God the task of preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. God gave this job to a man that doesn't eat from royal banquets, but who eats insects and honey, as the book of Matthew tells us. And John's message doesn't come from uh, the authority of earthly rulers and governors, but it comes from God himself. God's Holy Spirit dwells within John, and thus the text says that the word of the Lord came to him, giving John this divine message. And this message for us this morning is is quite important, because it's God's message. It tells us how we can deal with this deadly poison known as sin. And the rulers that Luke mentions in verse 1 and 2, they will not miss out on this divine message. The gospel not only breaks in during the reign of these men, but will also be preached to most of them. These rulers will need to make a judgment on who Jesus is and the gospel. As we might know, Jesus would later see and go in front of Herod. So would John. Jesus would also appear before Pilate and Caiaphas. And Paul would later appear before many rulers, including Caesar. So what is this message that John received and and what does he do with it? I want you guys to look at verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of, uh, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The message that God uh, gives John can't be contained into the wilderness. Thus, he goes out to the areas of the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we being at Windsor District Baptist Church, we can probably get on board with baptism, sure. But what about this repentance that John is talking about? What is this repentance that John's on about? I think for that, we need to look back a little bit into Luke chapter 1, when, the Gabriel, uh, when Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, appears before Zechariah, John's dad, and says in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, says, I'm going to read it from the, uh, the ESV, 
He will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. And he'll go before him, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers, to turn the children, sorry, to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Did you pick up that repeating phrase there? Repentance will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. Repentance will turn the hearts of their fathers and turn the disobedient back to God. Repentance is the turning of one's heart back to God. Loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. Turning from disobedience. John, uh, sorry, John went around all that country preaching that people must repent. Humanity must turn away from their sins. Humanity must turn their hearts back to God. And baptism was the sign that they were doing just that. For the crowds and especially the Jews, the thought of being baptized would have been quite odd because in Jewish culture, the only people that got baptized was those that wanted to convert to Judaism who weren't uh, already ethnically Jew. So what happened was those that were born un-Jewish would be baptized in a similar process as what John is doing. And those that were Jew by birthright, they thought their heritage was sufficient. But this is not what John says. He's preaching that baptism is necessary for Jews and Gentiles to demonstrate their obedience and also their repentance to God. It showed that they had turned their hearts once again to the Lord. John is calling individuals to be accountable uh, for themselves and not rely on their heritage or their works, but on God's grace alone. John's message, excuse me, John's message is about action and it details the human's appropriate response to this message, which is one of repentance and baptism. This is the way of salvation, according to John, and this is how Jesus uh, would also confirm this, this same message. And the purpose of a baptism of repentance was simply for the forgiveness of sins. Adult Jews and Gentiles were coming to John knowing that they had a problem. They knew that they had been poisoned by sin. It had made their lives toxic and had crippled their relationships with all their fellow Jews and those people around them. We too need to understand that we have sinned. We've inherited this poison. It's infected our lives. And one of the biggest lies we often tell ourselves is, well, we're good people and we don't really sin. And it's easy to make that judgment because, you know, we're not sitting in that correctional facility down the road, are we? We think to ourselves, well, you know, I haven't killed anyone. But we forget that sin, that one sin ruins our relationship with God. That one sin places wrath upon ourselves. When I often share the gospel 
I tend to list a few of these of God's commands to show the person that they're not good and that we are not good. Even if we compare ourselves to someone that is in jail, we've all told lies. We've all stolen. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I've never stolen, you just nodded to me that you're a liar, so I don't believe you. And top it all off, to top it all off, I bet we are no stranger to, the, to lust. Thus, we are in desperate need for God's salvation. The gospel levels the playing field because it shows us that regardless of your heritage, Jew or Gentile, we are in need of salvation and we need to repent for the forgiveness of our sins. But how do we know that John is legitimate? He could be anyone, right? Well, Luke shows us uh, an Old Testament quote that validates not only John's ministry, but also Jesus's. We're going to look at verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. This is the, word, this is the man John. He is in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And he's doing that with this message. This message makes straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Isn't that good news? Because of John's message, as I said before, we're on an equal playing field. And the text illustrates for us that all these obstacles uh, have been flattened out. All these paths have been made straight. And all people will see and taste God's salvation through this very message. Jesus' life, death and resurrection clears away these ethnic roadblocks. It clears the way for the need of circumcision. Thank goodness. It clears the way for this ongoing sacrificial system and makes salvation available to everyone. Salvation is no longer just hidden away for these small selection of Jews. But all people can now see God's salvation through Jesus. But as with all stories, there's always one to mess it up. And here comes these people to John, who are trying to manipulate his message, who are in disbelief. And look what John says to them in verse 7. He said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's giving these guys a warning, and it's a warning of judgment. This way of salvation, this good news, also comes with judgment. Which, funny enough, is actually good news. The good news of judgment is that evil will end. 
rebelling against God will one day end. And as you can expect, as humans do, some people are coming to be baptized just for the sake of it. And other religious leaders just refused to believe. But with both of these groups, you can see that there's no repentance. Even before and after baptism, there was no real change in these half-hearted people. And this half-hearted attitude, John doesn't appreciate. Thus he, thus he calls... Thus, he calls the people and the religious leaders a bunch of vipers. And John's words may seem harsh to us, but these religious elite, they're the ones that had, over time had made these crooked paths. These are the guys that were making these roadblocks for people to come and know and experience God. These men were making the mountains high and turning worshipping God into just a list of rules. And John says, they will be wrath of these men and the religious leaders that refuse uh, John's and Jesus' message. They'll be putting wrath upon themselves. And likewise, those that refuse today will find the same fate. For the, religious, for the religious leaders, their time has passed. They made their judgment about Jesus, about the gospel. And this decision that they made is going to last all of eternity. And I suspect, I suspect that these religious leaders will get the shock of their death. And the judgment that you make and the choice that you make about the gospel, about this way of salvation, it will too have eternal consequences. The scary thing is that many in our day are too busy to even think about Jesus or the what he says, and they're too busy getting through life and don't even pay attention. The other day I was getting uh, my hair cut, and uh, this guy was, was younger than me, and I feel like I can say that because I'm a little bit older now. But this guy, younger than me, he was, he was cutting my hair, and our conversation quickly got to, to God. And he said, yeah, you know, my parents are Muslim, but, you know, I don't practice that type of stuff. And, you know, uh, Jesus, you know, Muslims believe that he's a prophet. So, you know, if, if there is a God, you know, we're, we're definitely sweet, I can guarantee. And I said, I looked at him and I said, are you sure about this? Because Muslims and Christians, they both can't be right. Only one can be true. Look, I've, I said to him, if anything, investigate for yourself. Find out which is true. Because eternity is a long, 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 long time. And you might get the shock of your death. I feel that these types of responses to God and the state of one's soul is all too common. People don't openly refuse God's way of salvation, but they're just too busy to even think about it. 
And this neglect of one's soul not only is in the world, but it can sleep into the church. But there will be no excuse before God that will validate someone's simple ignorance. We need to make a judgment on this message of salvation. We all need to cling to it. Because this is the good news. The way of salvation is not limited by an ethnicity, nor power, nor wealth. It's for those that produce fruit, keeping with repentance. To those that think, it, uh, think they, they can make it by just their family tree, John reminds them in verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. As we saw before, repentance is not only just a turning, but here we see repentance is producing fruit. So what is this fruit that John is speaking of? I think we're going to find it in verse 10. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Tax collectors, didn't even, uh, tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Do not collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked, what should we do? He replied, do not exhort money. and Do not accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Those individuals that listened to the call of repentance and baptism were still running, well, what do we do? John, what do we do about it? And John's response to them is, is quite practical. Firstly, share with those that have nothing. If you have two shirts, give another one away. The text tells us that even tax collectors, tax collectors came to be baptized. Now for us, we might think, well, you know, those guys working at the ATO, they can be forgiven too, I'm sure. But there's a difference between our tax collectors and the Jewish tax collectors. That being, the tax collectors of John's day were working for the Roman Empire, and the Jews hated that. And moreover, these Jewish tax collectors would actually take a little more than was needed and would pocket the extra cash. Thus they became the most hated in society, or one of the most hated. And to give you an example of what that kind of is like, uh, the tax collectors would have been as hated as mobile speed cameras are. Like the speed cameras, we never know if we're gonna escape with a fine or a loss of a demerit point. And the worst part is, the more we hate these mobile speed cameras, the more the government seems to make of them. And likewise, the Jewish tax collectors, the more the people hated these men, the more they overtaxed the population, thus leading to more hatred. But these people that the society hated, God loved. And notice that John doesn't ask his tax collectors, hey, you know, just quit your job. He says, work honestly. Do not collect any more than you are required, he told them. And John's response to the soldiers is, is this, be content with your pay. Now I wonder, does God expect similar characteristics in us? Charity? Honesty, contentment. 
I would think so, because no doubt that we probably identify ourselves with either the crowd, the tax collectors, or the soldiers, or all three. Thus, we can see that the fruit that John is speaking about is, is, sharing, is sharing your things. That's, that's good fruit. Being fair and honest in your job, that's good fruit. And being content with your wages, which I dare say is the hardest one for us to, to grip with. But this is what God sees as good fruit. Are these characteristics evident in your life? Can someone look at me and you and say, yeah, I see that fruit. I see that you're honest, that you're content, and that you, you, you have charity. Can they see that? And these characteristics are important because it shows of the one that we follow. No doubt people saw great changes in the tax collectors and in the soldiers. And that got them asking, well, who is this John guy? Is he, is he the Messiah that we've been looking for? And let's look at verse 15 of what John says. People were waiting and wondering in their hearts if John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But there is the one who is more powerful than I that will come, whose straps whose shoes I'm unworthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John makes it clear to the crowd that he's not it. There's one to come who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who's more significant than Caesar. The man that comes after me, John says, is more powerful, more powerful, than, uh, more powerful than me in every way. And I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And John rightly points out he's only been baptizing with water, which symbolized a washing away of sins, whereas Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus' baptism would include the Holy Spirit, which was something the crowd needed if they were going to follow God and live to how he wanted we know that from Acts that the Holy Spirit was generously poured out at Pentecost, coming down as fire. But this fire also represents a refinement. Those that accept Christ will be purified by fire, but will be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And Luke goes on to develop this, this theme of judgment that now runs through the text in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the, uh, his threshing fork and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. John warned of the coming wrath. And he described those people uh, as chaff, which were basically useless husks of grain. And these, 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 rep, these people will be thrown into the unquenchable fire but those that repent and reform their lives, here John describes them as, as wheat, which will be stored in God's barn. Those that repent and believe are spared this fire and are a great value to God. They are the seeds of God and they will be producing uh, for God now. 
And John preached many other things, as Luke notes. But what John did best was preach the good news. Now, John was a fearless preacher, and he rebuked one of those tetrarchs uh, named Herod. Let's look at verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to them and locked John up in prison. Although Luke finished up, finishes up John's uh, story here, uh, John wouldn't be thrown into prison too much later. But Luke is finishing off this story to introduce this new character, the one that John was speaking about all along. He has finally arrived. Let's look at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, heaven, oh sorry, and when he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We come to the end of John's story and realize he was never the main character in the first place. We need to be hearing about this new character. We, his story needs to continue. That is God's son. The baptism of Jesus marks his public ministry to the world. And in his baptism, sorry, in Jesus' baptism, he's not really needing a baptism because he has sinned. But he's doing that to identify with sinners. Although he's without sin, Jesus is identifying with the sinners that he's come to save. Jesus is the one that's going to be able to rid us of this poison known as sin. Jesus is the one who's able to forgive sins. Jesus gives salvation to those that repent and turn to him trusting Jesus for their salvation. Our story reaches the climax as people watch on as Jesus is getting baptized and a dove uh, descends on him. And the Lord verbally confirms Jesus' ministry and his sonship. God says from above, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son, whom you love and am well pleased. Lord, in him we find salvation, in him alone. Lord, help us to turn our hearts back to you. Lord, we free ourselves from uh, the poison of sin. Lord, you make it possible and we trust you. Lord, thank you so much that you lived and died for us so that we may be in your barn. That one day we may see you face to face. So Lord, help us to follow you ever more closely today. In your name I pray. Amen.